0: Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Preparing for Funding, The Recut. I'm Kevin. And I'm Rad. And today we're going to be talking about friends and family funding. So Rad, I used to call this FNF or sometimes FFNF, friends, family, and founders. (laughs) But I think we
1: learned a different FFNF. You remember that? Yeah. It's my favorite, the triple F. I think I've used it every time. Friends, families, and fools. And we learned that when we were co-hosting
0: a pitch competition down in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, because really people who invest that early in startups could be thought of as fools. But your first money in for a startup is typically going to be from your friends and family. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't fools, maybe they're just geniuses. And we want to talk a little about structuring those rounds just to make sure that you don't get the company a little bit of hot water later on. So let's talk about why people invest, right? When your friends and family invest, is it because they're seasoned venture investors and they've really analyzed your business plan
1: and really have high hopes for the startup? Yeah, they probably have some spreadsheet with really in-depth equations showing your hockey stick growth. No, it's because they care about you. They like you. They want to support what you're doing. There needs to be some element of that they think there's probably a path forward in some way that looks like you have your stuff together, as someone would say. But yeah, I mean, it's about you. It's about supporting you most of the time with these rounds.
0: And that's the point I want to make is people don't invest in friends and family and fools rounds because they're savvy venture investors or because they've done a ton of due diligence on the space or they've reviewed your business plan and pitch deck in great detail. They're generally investing because they love you. you know, A lot of people come into our office right, and they say, I got this great idea. I showed it to my mom. She thinks it's a great idea, right? <laughs> and is there anything that your mom doesn't think is a great idea? So beware of that sort of bias that you might get from the first people that you're sharing your idea with. You know, most people initially share the idea with close people that they're close to, loved ones. And the response is usually going to be pretty positive, unless you've got someone like my uncle who just craps on everything. But what that generally translates into in terms of investment could be something that leads you astray. So we see a lot of situations where people come in and they've taken 50 grand from their aunt or something like that, and they haven't really structured it. Or the aunt bought common stock, or the aunt bought some class of preferred stock that they read about on the internet, and the whole round was $25,000. And then they want us to paper that up. I mean, what are your thoughts there, Rhett?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you've said it maybe the best I've heard, Kev, when you talk about your Lego theory, but this gets at the very beginnings of that. These early stage rounds, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. You don't want to create something that's so unique that when you actually do go out to talk to folks that are these savvy investors that are going to put you through diligence, that it scares them away or they look at it and say, hey, we have to redo it all. I would say if your company is strong and good and the later stage investors believe in it, they're probably not going to get scared away but they're going to make you switch it all. And then all right. that time you took early is undone. And now they increased the cost in the future and in the past by doing something that was unique and unnecessary. So let's talk about the different risks of early stage investors. And red, I'm going to lump
0: in small investors into early stage investors. We have a lot of people come to us and they raised $5,000 from 10 or 15 different people. So let's talk about the different risks with that. One of those risks is unsophistication. And your buddy who gave you $5,000 when you first got going might have been okay with that. But three years later, when he realizes that the startup is still a very long ways away from any sort of liquidity for his equity, might not be so happy about that $5,000. Or if all someone's investing is $5,000, that might mean that that's all they have. And that $5,000 might be significantly more material to them than say a twenty-five dollars or $50,000 check would have been to an angel investor. So you've got the sophistication risk, you've got litigation risk, potentially, you've got audit risk, not necessarily IRS audit, I mean, sure, I guess you could get audited by the IRS, but really more like Rad talked about the later stage financings, you could have your venture investor, your venture fund that's investing in you now is going to have their attorneys tearing up everything and looking through to make sure you did things right and making sure that the investors were appropriately qualified. I mean, we haven't really talked about securities regulation yet. And a lot of these friends and family rounds are just running afoul of all of those things. So there's a lot of risk with early stage investors. Now, you have to have money. We get it. So we're going to help you think through how to structure those rounds to avoid these risks. You know, Rad, I mentioned the securities regulations. Let's touch on that for a sec. I don't think we've done that yet. So you want to guide our listeners through the securities considerations
1: when you're raising an early stage round? Sure. The interesting thing about it, right, is it doesn't matter. And some people think, oh no, it's just a safe round, or I just did some convertible notes with my mom and uncle. But the bottom line is when you're selling a security, right, in a safe convertible note, most debt instruments, all equity instruments are considered securities by the SEC under the Securities and Exchange Act. When you are selling securities, you need to do so in a way that is exempt, or you need to register that security. Now, no one wants to register those securities at such an early stage. It doesn't make any sense. You don't have the materials, the financials ever to even qualify for registration. So you need to do it in a way that's legally proper. In order to do that, whether it's an early stage round or a later stage round, it's the same way, right? We're, we're relying on 4A2 of the Securities Act. And then depending on how many investors you have and other counsel or whatever, you might be doing a, a Form D filing under Regulation D and what are the exemptions there. But you need to make sure that you are qualifying under these regulations. And if we do it just a 4A2, then we do these blue sky analyses, right? Where we're going state by state and determining which exemptions we fall under in those states because we didn't do a federal filing. But you need to do these things even when it is just a couple of convertible notes or a couple of safes in the early stages, you need to have done this analysis. So it's really important to think through this when you're doing it. It's not just, oh, because it's early stage, this doesn't matter. No, it's the same analysis. So I think, Rad, you've done a great job at scaring our audience and not doing
0: that. So that's good. <laughs> But I want to reiterate everything Rad said is true, but there's exemptions available and they're not that hard to meet. So if you have experienced counsel, you can figure this out. But you got to have notes on which exemptions you're using. Like Rad said, some of them you got to file at the federal level, some of them you got to file at the state level, some are self executing. But you need to know what those are so that when someone comes asking later, possibly a regulator, but that's pretty infrequent. More realistically, during the diligence process of a larger financing round, someone will ask about your earlier securities exemptions and it's good to have all this stuff buttoned up. If you don't, it's a bad look. There's been a couple of times where I've seen investors ask companies to go and try to rescind purchase agreements for some of these small $5,000, 10000 investors. And that's really nasty. Imagine having to tell your uncle, uh, sorry, I'm taking away your stock. Here's your $10,000 back, but I'll see you at Christmas. Right? Right. <laughs> So, those things can be difficult. So, that's why it's important to make sure you understand securities exemptions. You need to visit with an attorney on that. Now, Rad, you mentioned the Lego brick theory. So, let me share that with everyone and let's talk about structuring these rounds. So, I've got this theory about building financing rounds using Lego bricks. And what I like about Lego bricks or this analogy is that Lego bricks are pretty ubiquitous around the world. They come in different shapes, different sizes, different colors, but they all fit they all fit really, really well with each other. And you can build with Lego bricks. You can build a nice wide foundation. You can build a nice tall tower. You can build great level of detail. You can build crazy things, but you can build with Lego bricks because they all fit together. Now, if you'll recall when you were a kid, you might've had that crazy aunt who sent you those non-conforming wood bricks or the plastic knockoff Lego bricks that kind of fit with Lego bricks, but You had to really jam them together and even when you did, the seams didn't line up or it didn't look right or even worse, if you try to take them apart, you remember that you try to take apart like the wooden brick from the Lego brick and they just don't come apart, then you got to get some pliers and you're breaking things. That's what happens when you use off-market terms. That's what happens when you use non-conforming rounds. You're now building with something other than Lego bricks and it's going to make your foundation rocky or be very difficult to unbuild things if we need to for whatever reason. So let's all use Lego bricks when we're building. So let's talk about these early stage rounds, Rad. Because sure, in an ideal situation, you open up the company, you raise 500 grand from one high net worth investor, and then you raise $2 million in an angel round, then you raise 4 million in a seed round, and 10 million in a round. That never happens. Realistically, you're going to scratch and claw with a bunch of your own cash, which is probably just going in as a straight up capital contribution, not even an investment. So it's just, that's how you're financing the company or purchasing your own shares. So you're going to get in there with your own cash, and then you're going to raise bits and pieces from friends and family, 25 grand here, 10 grand there, 50 grand, or 100 grand there. Let's talk, Brad, just quickly about the options there. Cause we're going to do a whole
1: segment on safes and convertible notes later. Sure. These early stage rounds, you typically are going to invest through a convertible. I would say every once in a while, you might do some super vanilla seed type financing with series docs or some variation of that, but that's the exception. Typically speaking, you want to invest to a convertible instrument. That convertible instrument, whether it's safe or convertible note, basically just says that you're investing this much money now, and then you will convert into equity in the future upon different occurrences. With the, the safe, that's raising another round, preferred equity round, or a change in control event, although typically you're just going to get paid out on that in some form or fashion. And with a convertible note, same thing, except you add the maturity date, most convertible notes give the investor the right to convert on maturity if they so decide. So those are your basic instruments and they'll have things called caps and discounts and things like that that Kevin out going to later. But that's typically the instruments that you'll be using in these early friends, family schools.
0: So you want to use these convertible instruments. We'll talk about them in great detail in the next episode or two, but convertible instruments would encompass convertible notes and safes. And these are going to be the path forward. Interestingly enough, we're seeing a lot more of these things. You know, Rad, this is the recut. So we first did this five years ago and we were seeing some of them, but now for the first time of the deals we did, of the early stage deals we conducted last year that were convertible instrument, there were more safes and hooks, which is exciting. Right. And that shows kind of the maturation of Texas as a venture market. Because I think three, four years ago, that probably already happened in San Francisco. Or that already happened in Boston or but now Texas, right? This has happened. So you want to try to use a convertible instrument we want to build with Lego bricks try and use close to market terms I mean you can always negotiate the valuation but everything else we'd like to be close to market I want to talk for a sec about a problem on the other end of the spectrum that we see with these friends and family around. it's when people show up and they say hey man I got my buddy to invest he invested 500 grand at a 20 million dollar valuation like so yeah so look look how awesome I am I'm worth 20 million dollars and my buddy over there that And I'm like, well, where'd your buddy get 500 grand? Oh, well, he's been very successful. He made his money doing this. I can promise you, his buddy didn't make money in a startup because no one's going to invest in an early stage company at $20 million valuation. But maybe this person just made a lot of money somewhere else and said, sure, I'll give you 500 grand for a $20 million uh, valuation,
1: and I'll just take my equity percentage from there. What's the problem with that, Randy? Yeah, it sets up a number of issues, right? Especially when this is the exact reason why we do convertible rounds, right? you've set a valuation. And so now when you're going to issue equity to employees, service providers, board members, you have this equity round that has a set valuation from a third party that needs to be taken into consideration when figuring out what that value of the company is for that stock that you're about to issue. If you had done this through a convertible note, which is debt, then there's an argument here that this money needs to be paid back. Every dime that you're spending now needs to be paid back. So the company is the value of the company is lower with all that debt on it. With just a high valuation like that, the first thing that always comes to mind is like the issues it has with issuing equity.
0: Yeah, so so now here's the textbook answer. You now set an artificially high price for issuing equity to your early stage service providers. And as Rad mentioned, a convertible note or even a safe agreement, which is likely to convert into preferred equity, would avoid that. Another issue which we've seen is you now are chasing a valuation that you're probably not going to be able to hit. So you got your rich buddy to invest at a $20 million valuation. Then you go and you get that 500 grand and you build your MVP and maybe you onboard a couple pilot or beta customers and you've maybe got a few thousand bucks a month in revenue and you're ready to go look for your seed round and you go find some institutional investors, some sophisticated venture funds. And they say, all right, well, we'll do some combination of a MRR or annual recurring revenue plus market size plus some sort of reasonable multiple on your projections. And we'll apply a multiple to that, and we get to about an $8 million valuation, which wouldn't be terrible for a seed round. In fact, that's probably right in line with most seed rounds that we're seeing these days. You got to go to your buddy and say, well, yeah, you got in at 20. Now I'm going to dilute the heck out of you because I'm going to raise money at eight. It's just a bad spot to be embarrassing. Or you're fighting with the seed fund saying, no, 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 we're worth 20 because my buddy invested it. So we see those sort of things all the time, these runaway valuations. There's actually a great episode of Silicon Valley that dealt with this, where Richard was going to get a large valuation. I think it was a B round, maybe a C round, something like that, or I don't know, high A, but it, whatever. Going to get a venture round, and he had these competing term sheets. And the fund that he had been with already, and Monica was the lead analyst there, had submitted a term sheet to him for fifty million. And then he went and got a competing term sheet at a pre-money valuation of hundred million. And he looks at her and says. I'm just going to take this. Why wouldn't I take it? It's double your valuation, something like that. And she pulls them aside and she had this real kind of advisor role in the series. She pulls him aside and says, you can't hit that valuation. So if you take that valuation now, that means your next one needs to be at 150 or 200. And how are you going to do that? Right now, your valuation is being blown up because there's a lot of excitement around your product. And that's similar for a lot of startup companies who have high net worth friends. But once you get into the actual nuts and bolts and the metrics and how many users am I onboarding and what are my revenues look like and what is my churn and what is my burn, things like that, boy, you might have a hard time supporting that. So you want to be mindful, being careful not to set your initial valuation too high because you're going to end up chasing it. You're going to be in a bad spot. You know, right, we've got some clients that last year were getting valuations, getting offers really, really high valuations just because this was before the market started to come down, before the economic crisis. And a couple of them were just really, really hot. And they ended up not taking them. This one company in particular ended up not taking it, it just wasn't time. But now that client is getting valuations probably half of what they were, but it's almost a better thing. Because now we've seen where the market is and it's been low for six to nine months now, and who knows how much longer it's going to stay like this. So if that client had taken that valuation, we would undoubtedly
1: be a massive down route next. Right? Which is Then you got anti-dilution and perception. Man, the amount of my cap table skills have really increased in the last year and a half due to all the down rounds that we've been handling because of this exact issue. So yeah, yeah. I, I totally There's agree. It's a
0: real deal. A lot of down rounds, a lot of flat rounds as we do these kind of extensions and stuff of the last rounds. So just be careful of those runaway valuations. All right. And then I wanted to make one more point about friends and family. And that is, what is your relationship with those investors? You need to treat all investors the same with respect. You have to respect the money. And the way that you do that is you keep your investors updated. I've written a blog about this. encourage you to check it out. We'll put it in the show notes. Keep your investors updated. As an early, early, early stage company, when you first have your initial investors, you should sit down once a week for 15 minutes and write them an email. Hey, here's what went on this week. We made this progress with the product. We talked to this potential investor for next year. We talked to this potential customer. As the company grows, weekly might be a little difficult, but it should be at least monthly. And just get an email list going, send out a BCC, include your attorney on it so that we know what's going on. We love that. I get dozens of these every week. It's just good to just kind of quickly scroll through and see where the company is. But keep your investors updated. If you treat your friends and family investors like this, Then you'll be in a natural rhythm when it comes to updating your venture investors or your angel investors and your venture investors. And the great thing about this is the value isn't necessarily in keeping your investors updated. I mean, that helps and that's good because you want to be proactive. You don't want them calling you and say, hey, what's going on? Can I get an update? You want to update them on your time. But the value is really in you as the founder sitting down and figuring out what did I accomplish this week or the company? What did the company accomplish this month? What went good? What went bad? What are our asks? What do we need to ask our investors or our network for? But doing that, and keeping them, respecting them, respecting the money and keeping them updated will save you a ton, a ton of headache down the road because now we're being proactive with the information instead of reactive, meaning answering questions when they ask them. And then secondly, the exercise would be really good for you or good for you and your leadership team. If you got multiple people once a week might not be the best use of time, but once a month at a minimum. And there's software to help with this. Remember, Rad, there was that AngelSpan in Austin that was doing that. But AngelSpan really moved to more like fun communication software. So I don't know that anyone ever got this really good. I have a template, Radney, that I like to send to clients. I'm sure you've seen it that I got from a client, I don't know, eight years ago. And that client did very well. It was in the pet space. They ended up selling a very, very nice exit. But I loved this client's format. And we took it and I scrubbed it and I posted it. So we'll put this in the show notes. But just follow this template. Try weekly. If you can't do weekly, then do monthly. It should be no less frequently than monthly, but keep your investors updated. They'll appreciate that. It'll make your
1: life easier as well. That's all I had. Radney, any closing thoughts on this one? You know, with the friends and family around, I think to your point, Kevin, just to reiterate, there's two things here that are my closing thoughts. One, treat them the way you treat other investors. And then two, the value in them is not necessarily, as Kevin pointed out at the beginning, that they're great investors, know what they're doing. The value in raising this money from them is to show your future investors how resourceful you are, that you are able to bring that money in. They want to show that you have skin in the game, that people around you have skin in the game, and you were able to raise a not de minimis amount towards the project. That makes it more likely they're going to invest in you as well. So it's really important to make sure that you don't just think of this as a throwaway round, like, oh, I want to just jump to the seed or the A and like talk to VCs. Yes, you should be talking to them at this stage as well, so they know about you. So you're keeping them apprised. So when you are raising, you're not some unknown quantity. But this is a real important round. You need to be able to raise this money to show your resourcefulness, show the belief, show your network. And that's going to make you more marketable down the line.
0: Man, I love that point. I'm going to add to it and then claim it as my own. I'm just going to claim everything you just said. Whatever <laughs> Rad said is just plus one from me. <laughs> but the point I want to add to that, Rad, is later stage investors want to see that you are really committed to this thing. If you're a young person or you don't have a lot of resources, you might not have been able to put in 250 grand. But if you raise 250 grand from your friends and family, then those later stage investors know that you're going to go to bed every night worrying about how am I going to take care of those people. I can't lose that money. I can't lose that money for my uncle. I can't lose that money for my roommate. So I got to do everything I can to make this the best possible. You know, there's a certain detachment that an institutional investor might have from its funds. But that detachment doesn't exist with really, really early stage friends and family. So whether it's your money or someone else's around you, I just want to highlight that point that Rad made that will count as your money. So let's treat the money with respect, but all right. Well, thanks for listening. That's going to wrap up episode three, which is friends and family funding. We'll be back in the next couple of weeks with another episode. Please make sure you check out all of our podcasts. We appreciate it if you'd rate and like this one. You can email us if you have any questions, podcast at bellawood.com. That'll be it. Thanks guys. Thank you.
1: The Velawood podcasts are recorded with the help of Radio MD based in Chicago, Illinois. You can find all of our podcasts on our website at Velawood.com/podcasts. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at Velawood.com.